0: To you. A hundred and fifty years ago, Christians set the world on fire for Jesus Christ. Vast swaths of the world that had previously never heard the name Jesus came to personal faith in him. Churches were planted in, in every inhabited continent, but this did not happen by accident. It took repeated sacrifices for the kingdom of God to be extended around the globe. For instance, William Carey left England to take the gospel to India. And while serving in India, he lost his five-year-old son Peter to dysentery. The impact of this loss caused his wife Dorothy to go insane. An Indian believer by the name of Ruth Mangalawati poignantly wrote, for Dorothy's sake, I would have been glad had Carey returned to England. But for India's sake, I am grateful that he did not. In Africa, a man who charted the course of the interior so other missionaries could come behind and bring the gospel when there were no maps to the interior of Africa was a physician named David Livingston He trained to be a medical doctor, he could have been very wealthy, he could have been very celebrated, he went to a mission station, he could have stayed on that station and been an invaluable person in medical missions, but God told him, I want you to walk where no one would walk so others can take the gospel after you walk. So Livingston walked over 29,000 miles across Africa, and his wife died very early in this ministry. And he faced stiff opposition from his Scottish brethren who would have rather he stayed on the station and done real missions. This man prayed, Lord, send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Sever any tie but the tie that binds me to your service and your heart. There's a woman named Maria Dereyer, and she was born in 1837 in China. And her parents were pioneer missionaries there. And then both of her parents died when she was just a very little girl. And so she was sent back along with her sister to England. And she was raised by an uncle that she really hadn't known before. But the loss of her parents did not deter her young heart from the importance of taking the Gospel to China where virtually anyone who lived in the interior had not heard it. And so at age 16, she returned to China to work in a girls' school as a missionary herself. And five years later, God had her marry a man named Hudson Taylor, a man well-known today for his life of faith and service and sacrifice for Jesus. He founded what was then called China Inland Mission and now called Overseas Missionary Fellowship, and and thousands of of, of churches were planted through that organization. Now, Hudson and Maria's work were often criticized because Hudson would dress like a Chinese person. The other missionaries looked very English and talked down the gospel, but but, but Hudson realized that, you know what, if you're going to reach the Jew, you have to become a Jew, and if you're going to reach the Greek, you become a Greek, and so he dressed and acted like a Chinese person, and that's called indigenization, and it's a biblical principle, but it wasn't very British. And so he caught a lot of of, of slack. Hudson and Maria's work was often deeply criticized. He's lionized now, but he was deeply criticized then by other Christians. And at one point Maria wrote, As to the harsh judgings of the world or the more painful misunderstandings of Christian brethren, I generally feel that the best plan is to go on with the work and leave God to vindicate our cause. And he did. Friends of their nine children, only four survived to adulthood. Maria herself died of cholera when she was just 43. But she believed God's kingdom was worthy of her sacrifice. And so on her grave marker, these words are inscribed, for her to live was Christ, and to die is gain. This Sunday and next Sunday, we are in Nehemiah 11 and Nehemiah 12, and we are zoning in on the subject of kingdom sacrifices, and so I invite you to turn with me in the Word of God to Nehemiah 11. Nehemiah 11. Now, if you don't have a copy of Scripture with you, please feel free to use one of ours. Reach out in front of you to the blue hardback Bible, and you will find on page 514, Page 514, you should find Nehemiah chapter 11. As you turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today. Let's pray. Father, we invite You to shake us, to stir us, to move us, to take us out of our complacency and move us into Your uh, kingdom urgency. We invite You, Lord, to help us in these next few Sundays to look from the Old Testament to seek first Your kingdom and Your righteousness, trusting that all these other things can be added unto us later. Help us to become on-mission Christians and help us to understand that that will not be done by us doing the minimum, but it will require us to be obedient in whatever way you find expedient, because you are the King and we are your subjects, and you get to place us in this world for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read the first two verses to you today, then there's a long list of hard to pronounce names and where they were scattered, and I'm going to leave that to you to homework. Nehemiah 11.1 1 says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem. See, the people lived everywhere but Jerusalem, but they had just built a wall around Jerusalem and Jerusalem was undefended. It was going to be upended because walls don't protect. Soldiers do. And so the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns that they had inhabited. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered their lives to live in Jerusalem. The people of God were about to fulfill the vow they had made. They made a vow a few chapters ago when they were consecrating. When they confessed, and then they consolidated and they consecrated, they said, we will not neglect the house of our God. That was their vow. And they were about to have to pay up and and fulfill that vow. It's fine words to say in a revival. It's another thing to upheaval and move your family for the sake of God's plan. God had graciously released His people. They had spent 70 years in Babylonian captivity. uh, And a tiny remnant, when God said, anyone can go, and the king said, anyone can go, only 50,000 of the well over a million Jews said, I will go. And 50,000 faithful folks made the, the difficult, long, arduous trek back to Israel where everything was in disarray. And then, as they eked out an existence, it took 95 years through many hardships. The the temple was, was rebuilt fairly early on. That was a challenge, but the walls were not rebuilt. And 95 years after the first wave came, Nehemiah rebuilt the walls to the holy city so that the temple could be protected from its enemies. But the Bible says the city now lie virtually empty. Nehemiah 7.4. You might want to write it next to your passage, next to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11. Nehemiah 7.4 says, The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. Because no houses had been rebuilt. Just a few houses that were already there, that a few merchants had, and a few of the priests had. And so, in our previous chapter, you remember that Nehemiah took stock of the people. He went back to the genealogy and said, who came back and where do they live and and where does everyone currently situate within the Holy Land? And, And he began to say, based on where they presently were, how many and who he would need to move to repopulate the Holy City. Somebody had to move. Somebody had to leave. Everything they had built over the last years now this was a painful upheaval friends uh, those obedient to relocate well they lost the comfort of their home there was no house to go to you had to build it with your own two hands they lost the convenience in 95 years they had finally eked out an agrarian economy there were vineyards and orchards and established fields and if they go to Jerusalem there was none of that And friends, they lost the security of their community. They knew that their neighbor and their brother would defend them to the death, that the enemy would come. But in relocating to the holy city, you were going to be around strangers and you were going to be at the very epicenter of the enemy's attack. If the enemy wanted to destroy the Jews, he would come to Jerusalem to do it. You were moving there. I want you to make no mistake, in Nehemiah's day, just like in the apostles' day, friends, just like today, To advance God's kingdom, kingdom sacrifices will be required of the king's subjects. And that brings us to principle one today, and it's the principle of tithing. The principle of tithing. I want you to look at verse one, and bear with me, don't import what you think I'm going to say. We're going to look at the scriptures, and you may find it's nothing like what you think we're going to say. Look at verse 1 again. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots, and one out of ten were going to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine out of ten were going to remain in their present locations. Well, friends, tithing is a contentious subject, and I am going to take our time today. We're going to spend two Sundays on kingdom sacrifices, but we're going to start with the principle of tithing. And I want to talk to you about what is true and what is not true in the principle of tithing. What was generally true for all saints. What was specifically true just for certain Old Testament saints and what remains true for us as New Testament saints. And I want you to check your tradition at the door and your emotion at the door and I want you to open your heart and mind to what does the Scriptures say to us as New Testament saints. Because we're supposed to be in submission to the Word of God, not the tradition of man. Now, it is clear from numerous Scriptures that when it comes to kingdom sacrifices, the topic of tithing occurs many times. It's unavoidable. It shows up before Moses ever gave the law. It shows up repeatedly within the law. It shows up right here in Nehemiah 9 when they're under no specific law. This was just a simple but effective solution to handle the city's need for repopulation. Here's what you need to know. As Christians, we're called to compare Scripture with Scripture, to teach the whole counsel of God. And this is the problem in tithing. We tend to only look at a little section. Uh, So as we take in the whole counsel of God, comparing Scripture with Scripture, we have to realize the progress of Revelation and where do we fall within that progress, and that's where we make Our decisions. So, the first truth we discover from the whole counsel of God, going back to the very beginning of tithing in the Bible, is letter A today. The principle of tithing predates the law. Before there was law, there was tithing. But, friends, it was voluntary. You weren't required to do it, it was voluntary. When Abraham defeated the kings who captured his nephew Lot, Abraham went to the king of Salem, who himself was a priest of the Most High God. And this is what the Bible says in Genesis 14. Uh, I believe it's Genesis 14 and verse 18. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by my God Most High, possessor of the heavens and earth. And blessed be the Most High God who has delivered your enemies out of your hands. And here it is. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. He wasn't required to. There was no law that he had to he voluntarily, out of grace, he chose to give a tenth. Not of everything he had, but of everything he had just received in this conquest. Before the law, Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils in battle back to the Lord. This was not a tenth of all he had. This was not a tenth of his annual income. This was a tenth of what he had just received in this battle, this struggle to release Lot. And so we see a principle for the first time in Abram who becomes Abraham, of a voluntary offering. And 14 chapters later, uh, in the life of Abraham's grandson, in Genesis 28, we're going to see this again. Not under law, under grace. uh, A voluntary choice to give a tenth. In Genesis 28, God visits Jacob. And you remember... famous visitation of Jacob's ladder where he sees the angels ascending and descending to heaven and God comes and meets with him and and Jacob responds to this amazing meeting with the one true God. Jacob who at this point is still the deceiver, the heel grabber, the naughty guy and yet God is saying the promises I made to your ancestors are true for you Why don't you be the man I want you to be, not the man that you are? And he's going to have to learn some hard lessons along the way. Uh, uh, Jacob the cheat is going to be cheated. It's going to cure him of his cheating. And Jacob is eventually going to become who? The Israel of God. Okay? But here's what Jacob responds to God in this famous ladder. Verse 18, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, his pillow, and he set it up as a pillar and he poured oil on top of it. He anointed it. He consecrated it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. For the name of the city was Luz at first. And then Jacob made a vow, if God be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, because he was leaving his homeland, brother was coming after him, then I shall come again to my father's house in peace, and then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So here again is a voluntary giving Of a tithe. This time the tithe was whatever God would put in his hand. I'm leaving here without much. Whatever you give to me, I'm going to give back to you. I'm going to give you a tenth. Jacob was not law bound to do this. He chose to do this as an act of worship and grace to God. So I want you to hear, even in the Old Testament, tithing is not always a law thing. It can be a grace thing. Abraham and Jacob were both voluntarily and cheerfully giving a tenth of what God gave to them. But in the progress of Revelation, law comes in, and the tithe becomes a rule for the Jews in that economy. For the rest of the Old Testament, until the coming of the church age at Pentecost, believers are under the law of the tithe. Not the choice. It was a requirement. It was not voluntary. God commanded this tithe from That time until the church began at Pentecost. And that brings you to letter B today as we look at the progress of Revelation on the discussion of tithing. B, the principle of tithing under the law, which we are not under, under the law was involuntary. You had no choice. But it was, friends, hear this: it was more than 10% of your income. And it was for more than one purpose. I'll say that again. The principle of tithing under the law was involuntary, but it was more than 10%, and it was for various purposes. Let's look at those scriptures that teach us this. In Leviticus 27, Moses told the people, every tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees is the Lord's, it's holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. So, If you wanted to take your tithe, if you needed it before it was due, you had to add 20% more. And every tithe of the herds of the flock and every tenth animal and all that pass under the herdsman's staff, it shall be holy to the Lord. And so under the law, which we're not under, under the law, everything God provided you, you had to tithe. From the crops in your field to the fruit in your orchards to the fruit in your vineyards to every tenth animal and it was to be randomized. You were to hold out the stick and the animals would come in whether it was of your pasture or of the fold or the flock and the tenth animal, bang, that was his. And then bang, that was his. And then bang, that was his. If you had a situation where you had to spend your tithe, you had a financial emergency and you had to spend your tithe, you could do that but then you had to give 20%. So how many people did that? (laughs) Very few. And you were not to pick out the moldy crops or the puny sheep and go, he can have that one. (laughs) Number 10 is this one. Uh, Verse 33, one shall not differentiate between the good or the bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. You know, basically the principle is you steal, you have to do twice as much. And it shall be redeemed. And these are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. For the Jewish nation, when they received the law. This was not voluntary. This was compulsory. This was a commandment of Almighty God, not some general guideline to maybe decide you want to comply with. It has the same moral weight as thou shalt not kill. It's a commandment. The tithe at that time was law. It was God's law. Now, friend, it makes me ask the question, why, if God loves a cheerful giver, does He mandate tithing under Moses? Well, you have to understand what's occurring in the progress of Revelation and God's plan with His people. After Moses, Israel's going to have to function as a nation. Under the patriarchs, there's no more than like 75 people, right? At the end of Jacob... you, You go Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. There's like 75 people that move to where? They move to Egypt. Whose government are they under? Egypt's government. They become slaves over time. They grow to be over a million. And they have a government. It's the pagan government. But now they've been released from captivity. They've been released into the wilderness and they're going to go into the Holy Land. There is no government over them. And so, as a nation of a million citizens, they were no longer under the thumb of Pharaoh and his monarchy, praise God, but they needed to fund God's theocracy. And the tithe was God's way of doing that. Now, you must understand, listen to this very closely, that under the law, under Mosaic law, from that point, from Sinai to Pentecost, the people didn't give one tithe. They didn't give two tithes. They gave three tithes. Traditionalists, hear this. There was an annual tithe that was given to support the Levites and the priests since they were to have the Lord as their inheritance. The the Levites were not to work the land. They were to work for God uh, in in various uh, various, um, uh, locations that taught Scripture, Levitical cities that would save somebody who needed refuge if they unintentionally committed manslaughter. Uh, And then at the temple itself, the Levites would do things. And so their inheritance was to the Lord. They had to eat the tithe, the first tithe, the Levitical tithe, Paid for that. Now, within the Levites, there's a subgroup called the priests. And do you know what the Levites' tithe paid for? The priests' ability to eat. So there was a tithe of the tithe, and it was to support God's work and God's workers. So, that tithe is mentioned in places like Leviticus 27. But there's another tithe. There's another annual tithe, another yearly tithe. Uh, In addition to the Levitical tithe that supported God's work and God's worker, there was the festival tithe. And this tithe is found in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12. If you'll turn in your Bibles to page 198, you'll find Deuteronomy chapter 12. We'll start at verse 10. You get there, and we'll go together. Most Christians who've been taught about tithing know about the Levitical tithe. They understand it was to support God's work and God's workers. But they forget about the festival tithe because we're pretty ignorant of the Old Testament. So before we go around quoting it and applying it, we need to understand it. Deuteronomy says this in verse 10. But when you go over to the Jordan and you live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit and when He gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in safety, then to the place the Lord your God will choose to make His name dwell there, there you shall bring all I commanded you. Your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contributions you present. So even when they were giving tithes, they still had free will giving. You still had cheerful giving, but you also had the law of the tithe. Okay. And all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. Vows were things you chose to do. Tithes were things you had to do. Verse 12, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your male servants and your female servants and the Levite that's within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. To take care that you do not offer your born offerings at any other place you see, but at the place the Lord will choose. In one of your tribes. Because up to that point, there was no permanent temple. They hadn't conquered. David hadn't conquered Jerusalem. It was still run by the Jebusites. They were getting this law, and they were not even in the land. And God said, one day I'm going to give you a place, and that's where they go. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do what I am commanding you. Now I want you to skip down to verse 18 and pay close attention. But you... Shall eat them. That is this tithe, this thing that you're these offerings that you're giving. You're gonna eat those things before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. So at the side of the tabernacle while we're while we're wandering, and the side of the temple when we build it. You and your sons and your daughters and your male servants and your female servants and the Levite who's with you, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. So the first tithe supported God's work and God's worker. The second tithe was sort of a holy party. You got together with everyone you knew and life shut down and you worshiped in celebration because that's how we preach tithing is celebration right and worshiping god never had a party aspect it was always dour and sour at the holy hour just like we do right Hmm. read your bibles so there were two annual tithes the jew had to do One to support those who were dedicated to the work of the Lord, and one as part of a holy festival unto the Lord, rejoicing in His goodness, and all the people participated together. But then there was a triennial tithe. Every three years, God's people were to take a special tithe, and it was to help the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien... Not this kind of alien, but the one that comes that doesn't live there, doesn't have a green card, that alien, okay? Uh, The the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien, and as a special top-up to help those in ministry, to help the Levites, because they had no other way to find and support their families. You know, in the New Testament it says those who give the gospel should make their living off the gospel. In the Old Testament, the Levites weren't supposed to work the land, they were supposed to work the word. For the people who work the land. So this third tithe is in Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy 14 at verse 28. That's on page 201 of the Blue Pew Bible. So let's go to Deuteronomy 14 and let's look at this third, the triennial tithe, the one that virtually no Christian ever talks about. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 14, 28, at the very end of three years, so every three years, triennial tithe, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it within your towns and the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the traveler, the alien and the fatherless that is the orphan, and the widow, that is the one who has no husband who is with you in your towns shall come out and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Now, While New Testament saints are sometimes unfamiliar with the fact that under the law, there were three tithes. Two every year, one every three years. This wasn't something Jews were unfamiliar with. The Jewish historian Josephus, you remember him? He's a Jew who writes... Uh, you know, kind of around the first century, he writes to the Romans, explaining to the Romans how the Jews work and think. He's a historian. He's, uh, his patron is the Romans, but his, what he's describing is the Jewish. And the Jewish historian Josephus, in book four of his antiquities, writes this, because the Jews understood there were three tithes. Besides those two tithes, that Josephus had just written about, which I've already said, and you're to pay every year, the one for the Levites and the other for the festivals, you are to bring every third year a third tithe to be distributed for those who have want, that is lack, to women and widows and to children and to orphans. So at the time of Christ, the Jews knew very well there were how many tithes? Do most Christians? Remember that when people preach on tithing and they omit a few things. Okay? Charles Ryrie is a theologian uh, who's gone on, I think, to be with the Lord here recently. Uh, But he was at Dallas Theological Seminary. And he notes that these three tithes, two annual and one triennial, amount to over 22% of your annual income. Because every third year you have an additional tithe. And so it's over 22% of your income. God established a holy theocracy and the people were called to be obedient to it. But God's heart never changed. God always loves a cheerful giver. And so he allowed for vows and special givings and free will offerings on top of the law that served as a a kind of tax to make the theocracy work. And so it's important that we remember point C on our outlines today. Point C is this. The principle of tithing under the law was never meant to lead God's people to mechanical cold ritualism. The principle of tithing under the law was never meant to lead God's people to a cold, mechanical ritualism, even though that's what it degenerated to by the time of Christ. By Jesus' day, some folks were master tithers, but Jesus said they neglected the weightier matters. Their hands were were scrupulous with the appearance of godliness, but their hearts were self-righteous. Their spirits were haughty instead of humble. They had become literal Pharisees with zeal for the very letter of the law. But they were dead to the spirit of the law, Jesus said. Jesus puts it this way. You might want to write Matthew 23, 23 and 24 next to Nehemiah 11. He writes, this is Jesus, the perfecter and author of our faith, the one who's himself truth, the way, the truth, the life. He's got this all down. He says, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe.'" Are they tithing? Yeah, they're tithing. "'For you tithe mint and dill and cumin.'" Those are the itty-bitty, nitty-gritty. Not the big crops, but the little crops. "'For you tithe mint and dill and cumin.'" but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. You blind guides, straining out the gnat and swallowing the camel. You can be a wonderful tither, and one, not be biblical if you're a New Testament saint, and two, not even be worshipful, according to Jesus. And he's usually right about this stuff. Did you know that? Fastidiously tithing while intentionally sliding is not biblical worship. It's a religious show. It's doing your acts of righteousness before men, for men. That's what it is. The Bible says we're not supposed to let our our left hand know what our right hand is doing. We're to wash our faces when we fast so that our fasting is for the Lord not in hopes of making our neighbor go you look gaunt and pasty you must be holy I'm glad you asked I am fasting because I am awesome you look (laughs) well-fed friends It is true, okay, so we're talking about giving, we're talking about it's, you know, we're not under law, we're talking about that this can become cold and mechanical and not worship, but it's also true, and I need to balance this truth, because there's two ways to fall off the horse. There are some that are going to hear this today and go, well, if it's not a rule, I'm not going to do it at all, and there's others that go, you know, well, I'm going to do as little as I could possibly do. Well, that's not worship. Our credit card statements, if we were to read them, do tell us a lot about who our Lord really is. Because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is. So there is an element where you could open your checkbook for the six of you that still use those, or you could open your credit card statement and you could look at where does my treasure go? And you'll get an assessment, according to Jesus, of where you treasure. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is. Because the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And that's true, and there's no way to get around it. But I also want to talk to you today about a different way to fall off the horse that we don't talk about. And that is this. Are we giving mechanically or worshipfully? Are we meticulous but callous, or is our practice joyous? Are we more careful than cheerful in our giving? Because that's not biblical either. Friends, the principle of tithing was never meant to lead God's people into some kind of cold, mechanical ritualism. That's the dead works of man's religion, friends. Equally, point D, the principle of tithing under the law, under the law, from Sinai to Pentecost, not us, the principle of tithing under the law was separate from free will giving. The principle of tithing under the law was separate from free will giving. Numerous times, listed in our outlines, God speaks of free will offerings to those Old Testament saints. There were voluntary offerings that you gave, not because you had to, but because you wanted to. Uh, Now, you and I are not Israelites. We're church-age saints. The Spirit has come to dwell within us. We don't go to a temple. We are the temple. It's different for us. You and I, as church age saints, we look to Jesus as the final and perfect sacrifice. We no longer sacrifice animals because the blood of rams and lambs could never take away sin, but the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, did. In 1 John 1 7, the Bible says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So, you know what makes me right before God? Jesus does. It's not my tithing, it's not my serving. It's not my coming to church. Now you need to do all those things because you love Jesus. But you don't do those things to make Jesus love you. So there are significant differences between the old covenant saints and church age saints post-Pentecost. Which brings us to letter E today. Letter E on our outlines. The principle of tithing as law is something we have freedom from in Christ. Did you know that? The principle of tithing as law is something we have freedom from in Christ. Here's a verse that makes that clear. Romans 6.14. I think we've got it. Romans 6.14. Romans 6.14 says, we are not under law, but under grace. Hey, you were saved by, and you are kept by, and you should give by, it's not how it's always taught in some pulpits, Galatians 5.1 is true. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And in Galatians, he's talking about those who said you should have Jesus and the law. Friends, some preachers preach tithing like it's law. They go to Malachi 3.8, and one day we'll go to Malachi, and there's beautiful things to learn in Malachi. And they'll say, Will a man rob God? how are we robbing God, they asked in the text. And and Malachi says, by not bringing our tithes into God's storehouse. And he was right, but who was he talking to? Jews, before Jesus, and before the church age. And we can still rob God, but not quite the same way that they try to tell us. We can rob God by not giving, amen? Yeah. But you can't rob God as a Christian by not tithing. Romans 7 is clear. We're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit, the Bible says, and not in the old way of the written code. I'm going to read that again. Romans 7 says we're released from the law. What does that mean? It means we've died to that which held us captive, so we serve the new way, the Spirit's leading, not in the old way of some written code. Now, friend, if you're not giving as the Spirit is leading you're robbing God. If you're not giving as the Spirit is leading, you're robbing God. That's where Malachi would be true for us as New Testament saints. If you aren't giving cheerfully, as the New Testament tells us, guess what? You're robbing God. If you're not giving regularly, they said every week they came and they met weekly and they gave What they had decided in their heart to give. And so giving is cheerful, giving is generous, giving is spirit-led, giving is regular. And if you're not doing those things, then yeah, you have a problem. Friend, if you're not being as generous as God is generous, then you know what? You're probably robbing God. But if you're not tithing, you're not robbing God. You're not. And it's highly telling to me that I have never heard a tithing preacher tell his people to give three tithes and over 22% of their income of you. Why is that? Why is that if tithing is so biblical for a New Testament Christian they're not telling him to do it three times? I have never had a tithing preacher say we should take 10% of our income and have a holy vacation before the Lord together. I'm sure many of those preachers are sincere folks, so please don't take this wrong, okay? You remember Apollos? Apollos was a sincere person. He was mighty in the Scriptures. He was powerful. But Priscilla and Aquila pulled him alongside and they explained to him the way of truth more excellently. All of us can grow. We always have to let Scripture compare with Scripture. The first pastor I ever sat under was a man who was an earnest man, who loved Jesus and loved the Bible, and he preached tithing. And, and he meant it, and he meant it Well, so please hear that. I believe most of these preachers who preach tithing really want you to become a biblical giver. And they think that tithing is what that means. So I'm not impugning them as individuals. But friends, I need to tell you that one of the unfortunate consequences of a legalistic mentality towards giving is it can create the blasphemous caricature and idol in our minds that 10% of our money is God's and 90% is. And that's not biblically true. 100% of who I am and what I have, not 10%, but 100% of it belongs to God because I breathe and live and move because He lets me. Everything I have is a sacred stewardship between God and me. There's nothing I have, my health, my wealth, My education, my erudition, my ability to stand erect. Some people can't today. Wayne couldn't. And it can be taken away in an instant. Everything I have belongs to God. And all of it needs to be used for the glory of God. Whether I eat or drink, the most mundane thing, I should do it for the glory of God. And so, your time, your talents, Your treasure, my time, my talents, my treasure, my children, your children are gifts. And they're a sacred stewardship that God has put in our hands that one day we will be held accountable for how we dealt with God's children that he put in our house. Now, tithing is a wonderful principle. In Calvary, our bylaws state that saints use a tithe as a general guideline. Not a legalistic rule, but a general guideline. People go, kind where, of, where should I think about starting my giving? We said, well, you know, tithing is a, is a helpful tool. It's not law, but it's a helpful tool. I've used the tithe as sort of a minimum benchmark my entire Christian life. But friends, tithing is not New Testament law. And you need to know that. We're under grace, which is point F today point F today. The principle of tithing as law is supplanted by grace giving for New Testament saints. You're not under law, you're under grace. And God's principle of giving in the New Testament for you is grace giving. And I want you to to go home tonight and read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the whole two chapters. They're going to talk about grace giving. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But I'm going to zero you in on one verse. If I only had one verse to explain 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it's 2 Corinthians 9, 7. You might want to write 2 Corinthians 9, 7 next to chapter 11. Each one must give as he's decided, where? By his pastor's giving program. By the group think and uh, stink eye of someone who's watching. Doesn't say that. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not, oh, I gotta give, I hate this, for Jesus. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Friends, if you think you have to give 10%, you're giving under compulsion. You're also not submitting to his lordship. What do you want me to do? Maybe he wants you to give a lot more than 10%. I don't know. I'm not God. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cold ritualist. No, you got it right the first time. 1 Timothy 6 sums up New Testament giving this way. 1 Timothy 6, starting at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. It can come, it can go but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Here it is, verse 18. They are to do good. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. You know what that sounds like? sounds like a cheerful giver who didn't do it under compulsion who gave as the Spirit prompted. Because when you take Scripture with Scripture, you know what? They're never in conflict. They're in concert. And the piccolo and the violin section are working together. Is is your giving New Testament in its thinking? Is it worship in its thinking? Or is it mechanical in its thinking? In Nehemiah 11, we see this principle, though, of the tithe, and it has nothing to do with money. You mean you can talk about tithing and not have to talk about money? Yes! In fact, that's what our text does what I want us to think about, because I think we've so narrowly thought about the tithe instead of biblically thought about the tithe that we've lost the impact of the tithe. I want you to think about the tithe here in Nehemiah 11, not as a facet of law. They didn't have to do this. They thought of it as a practical solution to the Holy City's dire need for repopulation. Nehemiah 11 once says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine out of ten remain in the other towns. And that brings us to our final point today. Point G, you see. The general principle of tithing was more than just monetary. There's no money involved in our passage. The general principle of tithing was more than just monetary. It was a setting apart, a setting apart of some for special service and inevitable hardship. Special service and inevitable hardship. Hardship. God's people gave up 10% of their fellow saints to see the work of the Lord advance in their generation. Imagine what the church of Jesus Christ in 2018 could do if we strive to send 10% of our people out as pastors and missionaries and full-time Christian workers. Imagine what a difference this world would experience. We're a church of 200. Roughly. We're growing, praise God, maybe a little more. That means 20 people from Calvary Church go into full time Christian ministry missionaries, pastors. We got one. We're praying for others. We started praying and there became one. You were going to study music, weren't you? And we prayed and God threw them upside down. Where are the other 19? We have not because we, God can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Imagine if every five or ten years or less, we were able to hive off 75 of us and plant a vibrant gospel preaching church 30 minutes drive in some direction of the compass. And There's multiple directions that we encompass around here, don't we? Imagine the impact over our lifetime of five or six new Bible-saturated, spirit-led, kingdom-minded churches could have on the community of northern New Jersey. How big is your imagination? Because He can do more than we can ask or imagine. But we've got a very pathetic view of what God can do. William Carey didn't have that pathetic view of God. He said, ask great things of God and attempt great things for God. To those ends, we're going to pray today. Jesus says, my house will be a house of prayer Many times we do that by turning to our neighbor and praying to our Savior, and we're going to do that in just a moment. I would like for you to turn to your neighbor in just a moment and pray that we might be a church that God sees fit to call 10% of us into full-time Christian service. Only God can do that. He calls, not us. Pray that we might be a church that regularly and enthusiastically plants other gospel-preaching churches in North Jersey because we need more light. Amen? Pray that God might stoke our hearts to kingdom sacrifice. That we might use our time, talent, and treasure to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness here in North Jersey. Pray that we might be a church that's as generous as God is generous. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Pray that this would become contagious. That it would start here and it would go to our brothers and sisters. That maybe God would start a gospel movement right here in North Jersey, to the glory of God and the building of his kingdom. Because it has to start somewhere. But do we even ask anymore? I don't think we do. Jesus said in Luke 18, 1, that we should always pray and not give up. And he gave the parable of the uh, unjust judge. And at the end of his parable, his question isn't, does God answer prayer? He'd already answered that. Yes, he does. His question was, when the Son of Man comes, when Jesus comes back, will he find faith on the earth? Turn to your neighbor, pray to your Savior, and in a few moments, I'll close this. King Jesus, almighty, all-powerful, all-worthy, the one who set the tone and made the example for the joy set before you, you endured the cross, not spurning its shame that we might have redemption in your name and through your blood. Lord, we need you as we sing, Lord, how we need you, every hour we need you. We need You to reinvigorate us that we would become a prayerful people. A people where it is true that we are a house of prayer. We pray, Lord Jesus, asking that You would help us to have a hunger and thirst for Your righteousness and Your power among us. We believe that You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as You change the face of the Roman Empire, You could do the same today in an instant. We also know that Many things only come out by prayer, and often we have not unless we ask. And so, Lord, we're asking that you would work in our congregation. We, we are not looking uh, aside to someone else, somewhere else, to do something for us or to us. We're asking you to do something in us and with us and perhaps even in spite of us. Lord, we're not impressive, but you are. You take the things that are not and shame the things that are so that you get all the glory in the exchange. And so Lord, we ask that you might be glorified to help us be a church that raises up 10% of however many you send into Christian service. There's a shortage of those called, committed, Christ-like, thoroughly biblical, and yet entirely dependent on you and not their gifts and talents and strategy and vision statement and five-year plan. Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to to raise up and send out people to the glory of God. We pray that you might be so gracious to give us such an abundance of riches that we can send out some folks from our preaching class into other churches as they have need for pulpit supply. And We pray, Lord, that you might help us, Lord, to one day plant other churches. If that's your plan, Lord, we don't want to make our plan, but... We know that in the book of Acts, your plan was everywhere you went to build people up and disciple them up and send them out and start in the church. And we get very content in North America to just keep growing our church. And Lord, there's plenty of things that we need and we do pray that you'd fill these seats. There's about 100, 150 seats here in this sanctuary today that could still be filled if we packed in like sardines and threw a few chairs around. There's room downstairs as well. But Lord, we pray that even as you send us people hungry for your word, that you would also give us a burden to help people because we know that most lost people aren't going to drive 40 minutes to hear a sermon. And so we can look around the compass in the most populous state of the Union, in the most population-dense part of that state, and say, you know, 20 minutes away, there's a whole bunch of people that need Jesus to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, to the left, to the right, over, under, and asunder. And we pray, Lord, that you might be gracious and use Calvary Church in your time, in your way, in whatever way you think is best to have us plant biblical, godly, vibrant churches. And in the meantime, help us to come alongside those you're already calling to plant those churches. And we think of that individual, Mr. Martinez and his wife, with the Hispanic church plant over in Grantville, PA, and we pray that you'd send him some biblically qualified elders that would uh, enable him to strengthen the work. We think of the work over in uh, Mastic, New Jersey, that's about to start, the other church plant that's already matured enough to take on a pastor there. Uh, we thank, Lord, of, uh, of work that you're, you're doing all around us, Lord. And we ask that you would help us to, to lean in, that we wouldn't miss it, that you've given us the privilege of being on the journey with Jesus. And it's so easy for us to get distracted by the bubbles and baubles in front of us instead of the kingdom that is before us. Make us effective and productive. For your name's sake, amen.